0: Welcome to Sales in the Subscription Economy, Season 1, Episode 3. I'm Amanda Northcutt of Subscriptioncoach.com, and today I'm interviewing sales master Mary Grothy, who has a list of sales credentials about a mile long, including, but not limited to former number one mid-market B2B SaaS sales rep and VP of Sales and Marketing, now CEO of Sales BQ, leading a team of six VP of sales, marketing, and sales ops responsible for 10 sales and marketing departments for sales BQ clients across the country. Without further ado, welcome Mary to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We are thrilled to have you and uh, share some sales wisdom with us today. So let's dive into our 12 questions. First off, tell us a little bit more about your sales career, where you've been, how you got to where you are now, and a bit about your company, Sales BQ.
1: At 22 years old, I didn't have a college degree and I hadn't completed any professional work. I had a lot of part time jobs up until Mm -hmm. then. And I took a sales admin position with a Fortune 1000 payroll and HR company. I took it at $13 an hour. I supported a mid market sales team of eight reps, as well as a manager. And for two years, I was able to learn the world of sales from an administrative support perspective. And very early into that job, I thought, what is this thing? Sales, what a cool career. Look at how much money they make. Gosh, they all seem to have these amazing lives. And I put myself on this fast paced trajectory to be able to earn a spot on the team. So for two years, I put my head down took some great sales training like Dale Carnegie and listened to Brian Tracy's psychology of selling on mm-hmm. cassette tape over and over and over again. <laughs> I'll hear his voice in my head when I sell today, but those were my two foundational trainings. And then after two years in that role, I turned 24 years old and I was given a seat on the mid-market team. And the cool part is I had never sold anything, and it also happened to be 2008, so I was very Oof. green, and I'm going into a down economy, but I actually didn't know any different, and I became the number one rep in 30 days. My first year of quota was 150000 I sold 758000 which was more than number two and three combined, mm. caught the attention of corporate. They flew me out there. The VP of sales of a $300 million division on a $1.7 billion company said, how do we get other reps doing what you just did? And I then started a one year journey of helping this VP of sales, redo process and methodology for the mid-market sales organization. And I was only 25. What a cool experience. I (laughs) felt like I got an MBA during that time just in The real world. On um, that second year, not only did we help reshape systems, processes, infrastructure, compensation modeling, and revenue flow through and allocation, as well as redefining the ancillaries that were sold, how they were packaged and priced from a corporate level, and then taking it out to the field, training reps and managers. They cut my territory in half. They doubled my quota. I did all of that, and I sold more. I sold eight hundred and fifty thousand in my second year. And at that point, one of my clients who had a business focusing on helping small businesses and entrepreneurs grow their practices by offloading the back office duties, like everything from bookkeeping, payroll, HR through CFO work in one package, they kept knocking on my door and saying, we want you to take an equity position with us, be our VP of sales and marketing, do everything you've done there and really take this company to the next level. So even though I had a really great thing going as a number one rep, I was making a lot of money. I decided to take that leap. I did that. And I got an opportunity to be a VP of sales and marketing. So I was 26 Mm -hmm. or 27 at the time Mm -hmm. and extremely green also in that. (laughs) And I did the best that I could. I was navigating quite a bit, but in seven months, we were able to quadruple the company's revenue and I built out an entire revenue engine, including marketing and sales. And after seven months, I left and said, I want to do this for companies professionally. I started my first consulting Company. I did it for three years uh, 2011 and 2014. I helped 36 companies rebuild their business plans and go to market strategies, repackage, get them from concept to profit as quickly as possible, and get them growing revenue. I did that for three years. And then, unfortunately, we all have lessons learned as entrepreneurs. I wasn't pricing myself accurately. I was working myself to exhaustion and burnout. Mm. And I was working with two small of companies that wanted to pay me with equity hope and and King Supers gift cards, which is the grocery store (laughs) we have out here. And it just it wasn't working. And so I met my now husband. I went back to my former employer where I was the number one rep. I did three more years. I sold millions, broke more records, Um, some of the exciting records. I sold one of the top 10 largest deals sold in history at no discount. I also had one of the lowest, um, discounting percentages in the country. And at one point I had the highest close rate of anyone in the company. So I had some really cool accolades during the time from a sales perspective. Um, my husband and I, we, we got married, we bought a house, we had a baby, and then I got a six figure commission check from that huge deal that I sold. And I looked at my husband and I said, trust me,
0: <laughs> I got and this. And that
1: was a great conversation. <laughs> I'm leaving my job where I make several hundred thousand dollars a year, and mm-hmm. we've built a lifestyle around that. But don't you fret, <laughs> I've got
0: this. And Hold so and watch
1: shaking, this. <laughs> I gotta do this. But still, BQ was born out of that. Nice. And really, Amanda. I just have such a heart and passion for revenue growth. I feel like God gave me this brain that's wired to think in a way that maybe other people don't uh, Mm -hmm. do as naturally. And so I love it. We built a company around it. And currently I have about half a dozen VPs that are supporting companies coast to coast. And we go on contract with CEOs in, in six month increments. So we typically find a CEO that's between five and 20 million in revenue and they're stuck. They're not generating revenue. It could have been a trigger event, something happened in their business. It could have just been that they've been historically successful. Now they've plateaued. It could be they lost a the top performer. It could be a million reasons, but we go on and we have a very holistic approach to revenue growth. It's, it's all encompassing from marketing, sales, sales ops, and customer success. We go on contract for six months and then At that point, we evaluate where we are revenue growth wise, and then we consider what we want our engagement looking like moving forward. But in that six month period, we do everything from rebuilding all the infrastructure systems processes and doing a talent development strategy for their existing team. We have recruiters, so we will augment their staff as needed. And then, of course, we stick around for everything to be profitable and make sure what we put in place works. And I'm living the dream two and a half years now.
0: Nice. I'm giving you a virtual high five right now. That is a, an amazing resume and we are uh, excited about your wisdom. You've, you've obviously acquired a lot of it and uh, hopefully are willing to spill the beans with, um, <laughs> with our audience today. Um, okay. Well, what sources do you rely on to stay up to date with sales and sales management? Uh, it could be blogs, podcasts, books, conferences, networking groups. What are your favorites?
1: I think I shock people when I admit this, but I actually am not a reader. And I have great respect for my fellow sales gurus that are out there that write amazing books, but I actually don't read them. One, I don't have the attention to read it. Uh, Two, I have a brain that generates so many ideas all day long, it actually can hinder some of my creativity when I read other people's work. And so I really just, my biggest source of inspiration for the work that we do is data. And what I mean by that is every revenue strategy or anything that we do is all custom built based on the company trends, data patterns, projections, where they want to go. And my favorite thing that I've said is no one will tell you better. The answer to the problem than the person that you solve it for like a customer. So what, that was a, really convoluted way of saying that no one's going to tell you better what you should be doing than your customer. The person that's actually buying it. Mm -hmm. One of the easiest ways for me to stay up to date on what's going on in the world of sales and sales management is by talking to people and having candid conversations of what's actually going on and then being a complex problem solver and then being willing to implement strategy, monitor it, make sure what's seen, what's successful, what's not, and iterate until it's working great. As far as me from a CEO perspective, I have a women's CEO group that I'm a part of. There are six of us and we're all female CEOs. I think that there is something very special about being a woman executive and it is different being a mom, especially too, and a Mm -hmm. wife running a company, being the risk taker in the family and it's a little bit different. So I love my female group. And so I think for, they're really my sounding board. And then I have a couple of business advisors that are wicked talented and they help guide me and allow me to bounce ideas off when it comes more to the business side of the equation for me.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That is funny. I'm, I'm a total book nerd. I'm on my 24th book of the calendar year or something like that. (laughs) I guess everybody gets it differently, but the data, I really like that. Obviously making data driven decisions is super important for any kind of revenue optimization. So yeah. Okay. Great answer. Um, Well, my next question is all time favorite business books, but I don't know that that's applicable to you. Um, You mentioned Brian Tracy's training um, and other, a few other things that kind of accelerated your sales career. Is there anything you want to share along those lines?
1: Yeah. I, I, I've read two business books that I swear by. I, I mean, when I say I read them, I mostly read them, and I really (laughs) focused on the pages with bullet points and pictures, but I digested it pretty quickly. Um, The two books that I read right before starting BQ that just really shaped our foundation, one, I'm a Christian businesswoman, and so I read Business by the Book, and Mm -hmm. that just really helped me from a foundational standpoint because of my moral compass and my values, just making sure that I was staying true to that internally and externally. And so I thought the book was extremely well written because it just helps take people of faith and put them in the marketplace is the term that's used for it. And I just want to make sure that I'm a good human being and I'm serving other people through this, whether they are faith-based or not, that doesn't matter for me. For me, it matters. And so I wanted to be a great leader and have those foundational principles. So that was really important to me in that book it was written a long time ago, but mm-hmm. man, is it good. And then the second book that I read, it's called good strategy, bad strategy. And don't ask me authors because I don't remember these things, but <laughs> thankfully there's this thing called Google so people right. can find them, but good strategy bad strategy. Oh my gosh. Like going into being a consultant that has to live and die by strategy Mm -hmm. and get to work with CEOs that maybe don't have good strategy and understand it. This was the most black and white explanation of how you build good strategies and how you build bad strategies and what to avoid. And I loved it. And so, and I actually borrowed the book from a friend who is like you, Amanda, he is like super into reading and he Mm. is a knowledge nerd and he knows everything. And he wrote in the margins and I was psyched because his notes were awesome. So not Mm -hmm. only did I get the book itself, but I also got to peek into his brain. I'm like, this is a twofold like win.
0: No kidding. Cool. All right. Well, that's great. Um, Those are great tips that you shared. I appreciate that. And I have not read Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. I'm going to put that on my Amazon wish list. Um, Okay, next question. Have you found consulting for sales teams in recurring revenue organizations different than a traditional one time transaction sale?
1: Yes, it is very different. And it is different from our three areas that we focus on data, people, and process. Mm -hmm. All three are different in those two different types of sales. And you can dissect it even further. When you're looking at subscription-based revenue versus one-time transactional revenue, you can also further dissect it into, is it a product or a service? And it is amazing how different those actually are. And when you look at profitability of those transactions, because what we train our CEOs on when building their revenue generation plans is to do a revenue economic spreadsheet so that they know how much growing revenue costs the company so that it can be profitable revenue. And in that calculation, you'll see that when you have subscription-based versus one-time transactional revenue, or even if it's short-term revenue, where it only uh, is one, two, three months, or periodically maybe happens just once a year or twice a year, et cetera, versus where you have what most companies are building off of MRR, ARR, et cetera, in the new subscription economy. But when you look at the way that you separate about data people process, the data number one. When you're working with a lifetime value of a customer that could be exponential and truly dramatically impacted by a great customer success team, when you're looking at renewals down the road, having a lifetime value and something where you can put a heavy emphasis and focus on down the road in the future in retention of clients and ways to upsell and augment the revenue, Mm -hmm. I think is incredibly different than having somebody that is working more on a transactional basis. When you have transactional revenue, it's more difficult to build a predictable sales plan. And you have to get very granular into what historical data has proven out. And so oftentimes we get brought into companies and they want to build a 12, 24, 36 month trajectory of where they want to go revenue wise. And when you have one-time transactional or even, um, just smaller dollar amounts and that short lifetime value of a customer because it's a one-time transaction, the whole revenue plan is shifted and different. And so yes, there are stark differences. Then you have the type of salespeople. It's very difficult to pull somebody that's used to subscri- subscription based selling and put them in a one time transactional type format. The sales process is very different. The language is different. The buyer is typically different. And so it's mm-hmm. a whole different mindset and skill set and how they're used to doing sales. And then, as far as process is concerned, so we talked about data and then people, but as process is concerned, then you have to look at What you're doing all the way from attracting your buyers through into that customer success, because in the one time transactional, there may not be as much of a focus on retention and upselling of revenue as there is on front loading that on the front part and then having just a more of a service team and not necessarily customer success.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, And proper incentive incentive alignment too, between your sales staff, what marketing sales and um, customer success is kind of a big conundrum. We'll come back to that in just a minute about um, properly incentivizing sales teams. So let's press pause on that. And then, so this recording is happening in March of 2020, and we are in the thick of coronavirus. So I have a few questions um, about that, that will hopefully uh, prove useful to our listeners. So 1st what are a few quick changes your consultancy has had to make in the face of economic challenges that we're all facing brought on by COVID-19?
1: Well, our consultancy, just us personally, Sales BQ took a really big hit as did millions of other small businesses. And it was a moment for us to redefine who we are to our clients and we are responsible for their revenue generation. And in the COVID response, that I'm sure everybody received hundreds of emails on every mailing list that they're part of. <laughs>
0: you got mm-hmm, to see yep. <laughs> every company in the world's COVID works. Yep.
1: <laughs> Ours. My first line that went out to our clients and to our CEOs was your, number one, your revenue is our highest responsibility. Line number two, revenue is king and cash is king. But revenue today is more important than cash because the cash will run out, but the revenue can last through the life cycle of a client Mm -hmm. or lifetime value of a client. And underneath that, as we started dissecting it, I, I was communicating to the CEOs that we had their back, but to my team, it was, this is your time to do remarkable work at whatever cost, if you will, that you need to. Mm-hmm. And what we do today needs to last and make an impact with our teams. And so my VPs have very different clients that they support. One of my VPs has, is only responsible for a small BDR team as one of her clients. And that's going to look different than one of my VPs who acts more like a fractional COO to a pretty mm-hmm. big company out here in Denver mm-hmm. where the CEO is really relying on her for response to the entire organization, not just on the revenue generators. And so it was really interesting to see quickly as being a a consulting firm that our roles very quickly shifted into this moment of crisis management. And the first thing that we did was we defined with our clients, who do we need to be for you right now? And then number two, making sure they understand that we are in a position to do whatever it takes to protect your revenue. So first thing that we did was I had each of my VPs go through with their clients and figure out how each specific business was impacted based on the industry that they're in and what they sell. Then we were able to dissect for each client, the industries they should be continuing to prospect and those they should probably just take their foot off the gas for a little bit of time. Then for the industries that we determined needed to, or that we did have opportunity in during this COVID time, we constructed we re-readed all of our messaging so we paused all the cadences we paused all the outbound messages and social media and everything we were doing for marketing and within 48 hours rewrote all of it for all of our clients and we adjusted how we were doing outbound then we did an emergency <laughs> sales training session and we taught emotional intelligence skills of empathy and curiosity and emotional self-awareness and we did role playing with each of our salespeople that were doing outbound and also inbound at that time of how to have a proper conversation in a time of crisis and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And for every client, it looked different, but the, before we could get into effectiveness training, we focused on each individual's mental mindset Knowing that salespeople, if you look at uh, the behavioral quotient, so sales BQ, BQ stands for the behavioral quotient. There's more detail about that on our website, but the wheel, we have a a BQ wheel, and the wheel has four components to it. The top is mental mindset, and your mental mindset fuels your emotional state, and that emotional state is going to set you up for the actions, your execution based on how you're feeling is going to dictate your actions, and then of course those actions result in your performance. And then that performance, it's a wheel, can then affect your mental mindset. And so the first thing we did to make sure that BQ was not affected for our salespeople was we dug into the mental mindset. We just gave them each through one-on-one with their VP room just to talk and share and really help them get back in the game mentally. Mm-hmm. That then helped their emotional state, moved them from fear, anxiety, uncertainty, into optimism and confidence and excitement and then we molded them from that into the actions and we rewrote their actions and prioritization and their cadences and outbound and we brought in that training to get them built to have more effective conversations in the middle of this crisis and then on the back end of that that's where we're starting to see performance right now so we had performance forgiveness and we're not expecting people to hit quotas to, I mean, we kind of threw that out the window for right now, but it doesn't mean they're off the hook and they can take their foot off the gas. What we're doing is we've changed the scorecard for the next few weeks and holding that we're holding them accountable to executing the new plan that we've put in place. And then ultimately from a marketing perspective as well, it's just being super smart in how you're representing your company. So for one of our clients, we, built brand assets we built dozens of them and we shifted the whole voice of the company into serving businesses that were designated as essential businesses but not those so there's a line here not those That as a circumstance or as a byproduct of what's happening meant their revenue just went soaring overnight and they're in like needing to hire all these people and they're in a really great spot and actually quite flourishing during this. But those Mm -hmm. deemed an essential business that actually were struggling and figuring out how to stay open and keep their workers and redoing their shifts and working with mandates by each of the different cities and counties and states. And so we got creative with them and just changed the entire voice of the company and how they were gonna serve those businesses. And we're making that a focal point uh, for these next four weeks. And so we just got super granular and tried again, as I said in the beginning of this interview, is ideas and strategies for me come from identifying what problem are we trying to solve and being a complex problem solver and making it specific to each client that we have.
0: Absolutely. That's great. And my next question was, what advice do you have for sales teams right now? But I think everything you just said, you know, trying to implement that on an individual and team wide level in different current revenue organizations. I mean, what you said is, is perfect. I love the changing the mental mindset and having empathy, 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 pausing those um, automated nurture sequences and things like that. Really, really important to change the messaging um, and kind of get on the level and really push value based selling right now too. Yes. Um, so that's, that's awesome. Um, okay, let's talk about cross-departmental de- cross communication real quick. So when you're working with sales teams, do you address how cross-departmental communication is handled within your clients' organizations? For instance, how intertwined is sales with product, marketing, and customer success? And then how does that inform the effectiveness of the sales team?
1: 100% and it's a requirement in working with us. I can't stand silo focused leadership strategies or execution? Mm -hmm. Because the last time I checked, it was one company. (laughs) So why are there like eight mini companies within the company? It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that we bring in is an audit where everybody's involved. That's our first 30 days is we audit everything that you just listed off and we identify the gaps. And we figure out how to create one holistic approach to revenue generation. And that involves everybody. And my short answer on this is I came from a fortune 1000 company where the different departments were so silo focused and segmented. It was brutal and mm-hmm. sales was not set up for success. We didn't have support. I mean, of course, sales is oftentimes on an island because people don't like working with sales. Sales doesn't like working with anybody else. You've Mm -hmm. heard all these arguments for years and it was devastating in some of the circumstances. And not only did I often pay a price when there was not when, when there was a lack of support from other departments, but my clients paid the price over the years and that really hurt me. And I hated it, which is really what the reason I ended up leaving that company mm. and fueled me wanting to do this on my own is solving that problem with smaller companies and building their infrastructure the right way so yes. that as they grow and scale, because it's, mm. it's, once you become too big of a company, it's very hard to change that. So I'm trying to help these smaller companies fix it before. But my word of advice here is be one company, act like one company and have a holistic approach to revenue growth and supporting clients, and that revenue growth is fueled by a great product or service. It's fueled with great marketing, a beautiful support team, great innovation, solid leadership, very, very strong, middle-level managers who are trained mentored and developed, not just thrown into middle management role because they were good at what they did when they were an individual producer or individual in their role. Mm -hmm. And no, but they were good. So we should put them in management, but we won't train them. Like that sounds horrifying to me, Mm -hmm. but bringing in really great infrastructure and communication and building a culture of high performance, not just in sales. And I know you said we were going to come to it. So I'll just plant the seed, creating a compensation model where everybody wins when the company wins.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great segue. That's actually my next question, but absolutely second everything you just said. Everybody has to be rowing in the same direction and man, is it easier to start when you're small and yeah, put that infrastructure and that foundation in place, like you said. So uh, yeah, great comments. Okay. So do you recommend sales staff's compensation be structured in such a way that they are accountable for customer retention at renewal time? And have you seen that done well in any of your client organizations?
1: If the salesperson is responsible for maintaining a relationship that impacts the ability for the company to get or earn the renewal, then yes. Otherwise, the person who's responsible for that should be compensated for it. Mm -hmm. If we have a revenue engine where we have four or five distinct roles, we have marketing automation inbound marketing qualification, developing those leads. We have a BDR, SCR team. Then we get into inside sales or account executives, closing the deal. Then we have customer success. If you have these different functions rolled out, everybody's compensation should be based on the success of their role. So if it's a marketing should be on performance-based compensation. When the sales team doesn't hit their number, the sales VP shouldn't be axed. The salespeople shouldn't be put on a PIP if there's ability to show in the revenue engine that they weren't able to achieve at the level they could by things that were outside of their control. So breaking this down, if the marketing department failed to hit their metrics, typically in most organizations that we go into, they get paid whether they succeed or not. Mm -hmm. And they typically hold on to their jobs longer Mm -hmm. when the full revenue engine is not performing, but sales people and the sales team seem to be the ones that are compensated based on performance and at most risk of losing their jobs based on performance. Mm -hmm. And so what we immediately bring in is when we are building a revenue engine, everybody needs to be compensated on their part. And I do believe that there can be a method or a version of profit sharing that does go into, hey, as an engine, as a whole, this is what we were able to produce where we at goal, below goal, goal, so potentially bringing in more of that team share. But I firmly believe that marketing, if your responsibility is to generate X amount of impressions that turn into this many clicks, into this many submissions, turning into this many qualified leads. If you're not performing at that level, you should be compensated accordingly and held accountable to those goals because the sales team cannot be expected to be magicians. Well, whether marketing performs or not, even though we've built all of your KPIs, metrics, and scorecards, assuming that they do,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then your compliance tied to that. But if they don't, you're still expected to pull it out of thin air and figure it out and go outside of what we told you your normal job description is and make it happen. And I've literally heard that direction come from CEOs and it's kind of like, okay, the salesperson owns a quota, but if you're building a revenue engine, where's the expectation on other people performing? So my vote is that it's a compensation model where people win when they do their job correctly and produce the results that are expected of them. And then potentially having a team goal on top of it.
0: I like that. And I think the uh, argument can be made for almost anyone in an organization to have some level of their compensation tied to um, commission. And I think that's still somewhat controversial, which is interesting. But um, real quick, what's your thought on uh, customer success? Like who, whose job should it be to um, work on expansion revenue and upsell? Should it be customer success? Should it be sales? Should it be both? Um, and how do you compensate appropriately so that incentives stay aligned.
1: This is a tough one and we solve this problem specific to each organization depending on the product that's being sold because a great customer success manager has no fear to have revenue generating conversations. Mhm. But that's hard to come by. Yes it is. <laughs> so you either need to hire for that skill set, train, once you have that person who actually has capability of doing it, train them, mentor and coach them for consistent performance and helping them through not only a retention of relationship, but also augmentation of revenue, um, which typically shows up in something that looks like a sales conversation. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do that, then it should be a sales responsibility. And I, when I was selling for the big payroll and HR company, my first two years, half of my quota was built on upselling revenue. And the other half of the quota was on net new business. Mm, And I had an operations team that was responsible for customer service. Very plainly, not customer success, very plainly customer service, meaning operational. I need help with my username and password. Something's wrong with my payroll taxes, like whatever. Okay. Okay. Then there was me who acted more like a relationship manager who had all of the conversations that had to do with revenue. So, adding new ancillaries, upselling, cross selling, soliciting referrals, maintaining the relationship. It was all a sales conversation. I liked that setup, but there are many definitions of what customer success is. And in the subscription economy, when you have, especially when you have like freemiums and free trials and conversions, and there's there's so many different areas and types of roles that you could have to build an engine. And I think what it boils down to is you can splice it however you want, but you have to make sure that your job descriptions and the roles and responsibilities are aligned with your hiring strategy. And if you have a business development component in, built into customer success, make sure you're hiring account managers. That are trained to grow and augment, but also serve the customer. Not hiring somebody that is there to train and serve the customer and support them, but like think sales is a four-letter word <sighs> and can't stomach those conversations. So you just have to have your hiring strategy down with the role and job description and expectation of the roles. But when I'll, the last thing I'll say on this is when we got when we get brought in to help clients grow their revenue, one of the biggest mismatches I see between type of salesperson versus mismatch with the role that they're put in is with customer success. When there's a quota or expectation that they're upselling and they have absolute non-sales mm-hmm. I mean, they're like scared to death. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll get breakout in hives. Having to talk to someone about spending more money. That's a mismatch. That's not going to be successful. It's It's not as... Or it's worse than the second biggest mismatch, which is asking a non-hunter to prospect for new business.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's kind of a big conundrum with very different DNA for salespeople and customer success people um, by and large. So I think pick your revenue or your incentive strategy for sales and upsells and you know, stick with it and then hire appropriately for each role and make sure you've got cultural fit within those roles as well and that you're building this culture of collaboration and we've got each other's back, um, not the siloed departments like you were talking about earlier. Um, Okay, we have four more questions. Let's blow through them. Um, All right. We touched on a few minutes ago about the difference in uh, the type of sales people it takes to sell recurring revenue products and services versus a one-time transaction. So... How do you guys coach sales teams up on properly setting expectations for recurring revenue customers? You know, those customers who have to continue to make the decision to buy from their company year after year, month after month.
1: Yeah, it's all in the initial discovery. I like to say that deals are won or lost in discovery. And I feel like really understanding the buyer's intention and commitment into making a buying decision, but it's always aligned to solving whatever problem that they have. And I would actually say in answering this question, I don't even know if we've put in a very super strong focus and having a conversation different than we would with someone else in the actual sales conversation. I almost feel like, and you'd have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but just my observation from what I've seen with the clients that we serve is that there is an expectation with the buyer because the subscription economy is so common now. And there are so many tools like this that the expectation is you're putting in infrastructure. So if it's tech stats, if it's a CRM that you're putting in, I believe that the buyer is coming to that conversation with an understanding and acknowledgement that they're looking at putting this in as infrastructure and they would like for this to be a long-term decision, that Mm -hmm. this is going to be a backbone and a part of what they're buying. Now, if you're getting into more nice to haves or fun little add-ons or ancillaries or things that might be solving a short-term problem, that is in the salesperson's duty to qualify that and have great discovery conversations and then make sure that expectations are set and aligned. Mm -hmm. And I think it just goes, what problem are we solving? Is this a problem that you have in your company all day, every day, and you don't see it going away. So you need something that is really here for the long term, or do you have a short-term problem that I think for the next year, it's going to make sense to subscribe to this. But the salesperson should know at that moment in the time, if they're seeing like, I don't know if you're two or three, this is going to be the right solution for you. Mm -hmm. And that should be communicated and handed down the line because in that responsibility for retention passes hands, it would be great if the salesperson has acknowledged that because wouldn't it be nice if your customer success or account managers could forecast a appropriately and say, here of my book of accounts, here's who I think is going to increase revenue, decrease revenue, or potentially stay the same and have that forecast ahead of time. One client that we worked with had never done that exercise. And the CEO Mm. was telling me that they hated losing accounts. And I'm like, aren't your salespeople talking to these people? Like, why are they not asking questions about retention of this account and what's going on in their business? And he was telling me some of the common reasons why they would lose business. I'm like, okay, Can the salesperson be talking about this ahead of time and planting seeds to get ahead of that situation before it happens to make sure that we have retention? That's a different part of the conversation. You did not ask me, but I do think it is a responsibility on the front end to be able to qualify what the likelihood of longevity is of that customer staying a customer based on the magnitude of the problem that you're solving and their interpretation, the buyer's interpretation of how long of a solution they're really looking at investing in.
0: Love that. It's definitely a really an important piece of the puzzle. Um, okay. And this next question, I think you can probably just summarize a previous answer about what you guys at Sales BQ are doing right now with your clients. But what do you think sales teams should be doing right now, both to make sales now and to be in the best position for maximum success once we're kind of past this acute phase of this global crisis?
1: It's all just doing right by people and being a human being. Whether you get a sale today or not, the communication that you're putting forth to your prospective clients, they will not remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel, and that's mm-hmm. a my Angelou quote. And all I have to say on that is, be good to people. Serve them. be a human being. Use empathy and curiosity. Have good conversations right now. Don't push your agenda. Align with theirs. Be an amazing consultant. Guide them potentially to a buying decision timeline that's going to make sense for the changes they're experiencing in their company. You do right by them. They will not forget it. You will be well positioned. Also make sure that you're calling high enough or appropriately, maybe not just high enough to multiple people within the organization, we are in a time where there may be some layoffs. And with that, do not build your relationship with one person in the company, make Mm -hmm. sure that your value prop and your understanding of what you can bring forth is heard by two or three people that could be on the decision and influence team. So that if somebody is removed from the organization, your entire opportunity is not completely cut out, make sure that you're planning seeds with other people.
0: Very smart. I think you hit that nail on the head. Um, how about one to three pieces of advice you would give sales VPs competing in the subscription economy right now? And is that advice any different than you would have said pre-COVID-19? Oh
1: my gosh, it's just all in your people and it's in your process and it's your ability to capture data. If you wanna compete and be competitive, know what you're bringing to the table and know the tools that you have in your bag and opinions are valuable, but data is priceless for a VP that's looking at competing, just be smart on how you've set up your infrastructure and your processes. Also, I would say don't fall into the robotic world of scripting and automation because that's, I think, where a lot of people have fallen. And I can sniff out an automated email (sighs) and a canned email Mm -hmm. just like the rest of buyers out there. I am a CEO. I do make buying decisions. I am solicited frequently by salespeople. And the ones, the the ones that get through to me are, even though they have an automated cadence, sometimes they step out of that cadence. They comment on something on LinkedIn. They will send me a private, like more of a personal email outside of their cadence. They do customize their cadence to the point that I really can't tell that it's automated, but just be smarter. Bring the human back into sales. Make yeah. sure your people also, I just find with a, in this subscription sale, a lot of these younger teams and BDRs. They're just script readers and they don't have frame of reference, mm-hmm. help them and mentor them and give them the context so that when they can have a slightly deeper conversation mm-hmm. with their prospect and at least understand what the heck they sell and what problem that it solves. It's shocking to me how many times we go into an organization that has a preexisting team of BDRs and they don't even know what the product or service that they sell actually does.
0: Ugh.
1: Like bring that into them. Give them the why. Help them understand. Help yeah. them to Empower set up them. for success. Thank you. Yes.
0: Mm, I like this. I feel like kind of the umbrella over our whole conversation is, you know, be an empathetic, emotionally intelligent human, and you will succeed even when times are tough. Um, yeah. all that advice. Okay. Last question. Um, I'm a firm believer that sales makes the world go round and we have a tremendous responsibility to get the economy moving again. How can we speed up that process?
1: by believing in ourselves that it's our responsibility. So
0: do you follow Mike Weinberg? Uh, I think I follow him on Twitter.
1: Yeah, me too. So I'm going to read you a post that Mike Weinberg wrote, and it shaped everything for me. Um, this is a tweet that I read on my uh, national webinar that I did when the COVID Situation launched, and this just inspired me deeply. It says, We must continue to sell because we salespeople drive the economy. And if there was ever a time the economy needed the help, it's right now. It's not just your job, it's your duty to yourself, your company, your customers, and possibly even your country. Sales, we fuel people making buying decisions. That's how the economy runs when people exchange money. Mm -hmm. And we are the instigators. We are the ones that drive that. We are the ones that bear that responsibility. And we're the ones that have raised our hand and said, I want to be a salesperson or work in the sales community. And if you're still bold enough to claim that this is the role that you want, then it's time like no other than to show up and get the job done because there's a lot of people counting on us.
0: Mm, I like that. Swift kick in the pants. That's great. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> um, well that's, that was our last of the 12 questions and I know Mary has a special offer for our listeners and I'll give her a quick uh, second to explain what those goodies are and we'll certainly link to them in the show notes.
1: Yeah, it's super easy. Go to salesbq.com. If you are a CEO or VP of sales or executive, we have a RevOps master template download to help you gain visibility into where your revenue generation might be held back right now. Find root cause, identify it. There's a master companion guide that goes along with it that should help create good conversations internally. You're welcome to throw a meeting on my calendar if you want to discuss some of your findings and just strategy moving forward. If you're a salesperson, a producer, someone responsible for revenue generation, our training room, 90% of the content in there is free. And go in there, register, get access, it's free. Digest the content love it. Leave us comments. And there are a few courses in there if you do want to take it to the next level, but they're very inexpensive. Like spend a hundred bucks, get a new inbound strategy through LinkedIn as an example, but join us in there. And of course, just connect with me on LinkedIn and
0: um, I'd love to be connected with you. Awesome. Thanks again, Mary Grothy, CEO of Sales BQ out of the lovely Denver, Colorado. We appreciate your insight and advice. Thank you. You can check out today's show notes at subscriptioncoach.com slash podcast and sign up for my weekly newsletter, Sales in the Subscription Economy, where I curate and summarize the best content on subscription sales and sales team recruiting on the web every week on subscriptioncoach.com. See you next time on Sales in the Subscription Economy.